Welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for Thursday, August 17th, 2017, the Very Fine People edition. I'm here with two very fine people. I should mention that David Plotz is still off gallivanting. I think he is in Oregon for the eclipse. Um, and I also think he'll be back next week. But who cares? Because we have John Dickerson, host to Face the Nation, who is not in a studio, and that's why he sounds a little strange. Hey, John. Hello, Emily. <laughs> that was me sounding sound strange. strange. Wow. You sound enough strange without that fakes, though. Um, and our special honored guest is Jeff Goldberg, who is the editor of The Atlantic. I hope that is the right title. He runs the place. Editor-in-chief, but I don't care because I'm very egalitarian. I see. Okay. As long as everyone knows that you're in charge. Um, yes, thanks so much exactly. for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. On this week's Gab Fest, there's just nothing to talk about. We had to really scrounge for topics this week. Just kidding. First, we will discuss the political aftermath of the violent white supremacist rally in Charlottesville last weekend. In this first topic, we're going to focus on the consequences for President Trump, because what choice does he leave us? In our second topic, we're going to talk about some of the legal questions the rally raised about free speech and demonstrations, and also the implications going forward for the white nationalist movement and its opponents. And our third topic will be the Alabama Senate race. Roy Moore, conservative judicial activist extraordinaire, won the Republican primary for the Alabama Senate. There will be a runoff at some point John will tell us about with um, the runner-up, Luther Strange. John and Jeff are going to fill me in on that race, which I don't know very much about. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we're going to talk about Jeff and the Atlantic's new podcast, which is called Radio Atlantic and features Jeff along with Alex Wagner and Matt Thompson. John and I are going to give him bad advice. So um, in order to make his podcast fail, that is our plan. I'm so looking forward. Yeah, we're going to be super helpful. Okay, so for our first topic, President Trump last weekend Immediately following this rally in Charlottesville, which turned into a melee and was scary to be at and to watch unfolding, President Trump said that, quote, many sides were to blame in Charlottesville. He said this again at a kind of wild west of a news conference on Tuesday. In that news conference, Trump also called out the violent left. He suggested that some of the ralliers and some of the counter demonstrators were, quote, very fine people. And white supremacists like Richard Spencer and David Duke have made it clear that they see all of this as a gift from the president. And this is the kind of boost, as the New York Times put it in a headline, that they haven't received from an American president in a lot of decades, like maybe since Woodrow Wilson. We can talk about that. So, Jeff, I'm curious what your theory of why this is happening this way is. And I guess I was struck uh, by a piece in commentary by John Podharitz in which he called the people who showed up in Charlottesville, uh, the white supremacists and their allies, quote, the nucleolus of Trump support, the tiny machine inside the atomic machine that forms the core of the Trump base. And Podharitz's theory was that Trump knows what binds his base to him, and he feels that this is necessary for his core support. Does that make sense to you as like a way into thinking about this? It does make sense to me. But what also makes sense to me is that Trump uh, is, let's just say, and I want to word this carefully, organically attached 
to this movement. I'm not saying he's organically attached to neo-Nazis, although his equivocation on the issue of Nazism is one of the most flummoxing aspects of this. What I'm saying is that uh, he has a kind of white pride. He believes in his conception of European culture, um, that America is a white country in its origins, and that there's nothing wrong. Uh, just as Black Lives Matter, he believes that white lives matter. And, I mean, again, I'm trying to uh, – spending a lot of time, as we all are, trying to understand the workings of the of the brain here, right? Which is so, unfortunate so, that we have to do this, but please proceed. I'd rather spend August doing something else. To be fair, but what I'm what I'm getting at is that I don't I don't think it's just mechanical. Uh, it's not you know we have a tendency all of us to analyze politics through the prism of self interest or tactical gain, uh, and and I think here we we have to take that into account because I think John Podharts is right. This is deeply felt on the part of Trump. You look back at his long history of fractious relations with African Americans. You look at the way he ethnicizes every issue. Uh, you look at his treatment of Barack Obama and you realize that, no, 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 this is, this is him, the true him. And whether or not it helps, it helps him politically, I think he just can't help expressing the truth, which of course is an oddity given that he has a troubled relationship with, with truth as, as we understand it. Right, but he has a pretty good relationship with like his own gut and his id, right? That's what and I'm I feel saying. like that's yeah, yeah right. This that's is like, him. It's not right. This is it's him. not factual truth, but it's like some sort of gut level response, deep atavistic response to change in America. The change that was symbolized mainly by the the shocking election, shocking to him, election of an African American with a strange name. There are parts of Trump's record that spelled this out all along. There's the lawsuit against the Trump real estate company for racial discrimination back in, I believe, the 1970s. There's his insistence that the Central Park Five were guilty of a terrible rape when it was clear that they had been wrongly convicted. And, you know, we can give other examples as well. The birther controversy well, is a huge one. Yeah. Yes. John, go ahead. Interrupt. Didn't he on the Central Park Five? He was wrong in the end. But when he um, and he maintains that he was still right. So I'm not letting him off yes. the hook. But when he when he was on the bandwagon, lots of other people were, too. It was then later that they were overturned. The, the problem with him is that he still maintains that they're guilty when even the people who were involved in the case no longer do. Um, yes, precisely. The insistence, right? I mean, it's the same. Yeah, as, it's the insistence. It's, yeah. The more you tell him, the, the more you tell him he's wrong, the more he's he, he doubles down, triples down. Can I step back just a tiny bit and give the reasons I thought that what he said on Saturday and, and Tuesday were Tuesday. so so extraordinary? Please. What struck me about his both events is that it was discordant both with the person we he has come to teach us he is, and then discordant from what we expect from a president. So by the first one, I mean is that he has, normally he has a very specific and well-practiced response to those things that he sees that are un-American. And it has three parts. First, he calls it out, and he calls it out fast. He didn't do that here when talking about the neo-Nazis. Second, under usual circumstances, anyone who says to his blunt explanations of things, well, you know, it's more complicated than that, or there's contributory violence, or there's contributory factors here you should take into account. He uses their remarks as proof that they don't understand the big truth, and he ridicules them for it, because he argues anybody who isn't focused on the big picture doesn't understand the picture at all. 
in this course, a case, of course, his instinct and energy was focused on this idea of left wing violence and not so much the big thing, which is the neo-Nazis who are doing the protesting. And then third and the final part of his traditional response to these kinds of things is that in his that he has often had a relaxed attitude towards violence done to those that he has identified as un-American. So we saw this repeatedly in his rallies. And when a guy was protesting and then was cold cocked by one of the members of of his audience, he said, well, yes, I don't condone violence, but the guy who was hit was giving, you know, gesturing with his middle finger as if to say, I don't condone violence, but he had it coming. So that's what he's that's what he's taught us. His response is to things that he thinks are un-American. And yet in this case, when something was un-American, he completely reversed the telescope. He went against all three of those things by his own standards and his own behavior, which is so signature and a part of his character. He was completely reversing that. Now, we know that he's changed his standards depending on the situation, which uh, is kind of one of his other um, traditional types of behavior. But in this case, why is he changing the standard? It's to protect essentially white nationalists. The presidents usually respond to these kinds of things in moral terms. The people who are marching in the street are marching for ideas that are totally antithetical to the country that he is the leader of. And he refused to engage in that morally at all. In fact, did context-free analysis that suggested equivalence that is kind of the opposite of what a president does. That, for me, after uh, nearly a week of this, is what was so off about his remarks. The original premise when you started was that this rally and the ideas that it espoused and its just whole constitution was un-American. And I don't think President Trump thinks that. I think he made it pretty clear in all the equivocating and essentially the defending that he sees a lot of those people as his allies and supporters and as the true Americans if he had to choose. That was like the very right. stark thing I was hearing. But. But right. That, but that's my point is that normally he says one drop of what he decides is un-American in an enormous pool, nevertheless, pollutes the entire pool. And in this case, he had it reversed. The people carrying the Nazi flags and shouting blood and soil and Jews will not replace us. He overlooked and focused just on the smaller number of people who he said were there for the statue. Right. He doesn't, so deny, he's reversing he doesn't deny his, that they were very bad people. He just says that a lot of them were actually very fine people. And that's where he differs with a lot of other ob observers. And that is a reversal for him of the way he would normally look at at something. Were you surprised by, by this? The reason I ask is I found myself surprised to realize that, wait, the president of the United States is actually pro-Confederacy in a kind of way. <laughs> it was revealing to me that the response of Jeff Sessions was so seemed so much like the high ground when in fact it was just like the super arch liberal thing Jeff to say. Sessions, right? Right, like suddenly Jeff Sessions who, you know, has some difficult questions about racial discrimination in his past for sure is seizing this opportunity to distance himself from all of that. It was a smart thing to do. He's also looking like the leading law enforcement official in the country by calling this domestic terrorism and not mincing words and painting clear lines between himself and his agency and the kind of conduct we saw. It was an obvious thing for him to do, and Trump could have gotten points by doing the same. Instead, 
we have this situation right now. And John, I wanted to ask you, you know, about the politics of this. So this seems to me like just a terrible blow for the Republican Party. Most Republican leaders have spent the last couple of generations absolutely rejecting overt racism and anti-Semitism of the kind we saw in Charlottesville. Suddenly, the waters are much muddier for their party. And Trump seems to be continuing his insistence on reaching out to the part of his base that, as Jeff was saying, is full of white pride and also resentment of a changing America. And and what does that mean for the Republicans? Well, one thing we should also note is that as a political matter, being associated with and praised by the Imperial Wizard of the KKK is something you want to get away from. And it would have been costless. The white supremacists weren't even expecting anyone to stand with them. Exactly. By, by so, way, it's, John, it's impor- I, I mean, you're, you're you're the great expert here. Is there anything easier for a president to do than denounce Nazism? I mean, maybe endorse no, but- Girl Scout cookie buying, but I mean, is right. there anything? Right. Is there easier layup in in, polit- in politics than than coming no. out against? I mean, Nazism? this is a you can't think of a of a sports metaphor that's as easy as this. I mean, this isn't a slam dunk. This is like a slam dunk on a two foot basket. Um, <laughs> so, for any president to denounce na- Nazis is a slam dunk. For a president who's being praised by the Imperial Wizard of the KKK and who has baggage on this question, it's an imperative. Um, and for a president who has a rock-hard, rock-solid base, uh, who he said he could shoot somebody in Fifth Avenue and not lose, there's no downside to this. And instead, what he did was suggest that the good people were there protesting alongside the Nazis, as if anybody could still be considered good if they were joining in a protest with the Nazis. Anyway, that's just one more piece of what's extraordinary about this. Um, I so think, what are the political um, implications of that? Because you didn't do the layup on the two-foot basket. Yeah. So that's what I was about to turn to. The slam um, dunk. <laughs> a layup on a two-foot basket would be very difficult All right. if you're a normal height. I just want to note that. <laughs> so, um, so the question of the there politics here are interesting. I mean, I think for his base what they will do is say for his core core base i think they will say look there was there was violence on both sides and in fact there was it's the point is that that's not the point i think so i think that's what the core group will do i think there are those republicans many of whom i've talked to who voted for him because they wanted the supreme court because they didn't like hillary clinton who will be offended by this and of course this comes as a this is not a one-off this is now over the course of three days so this comes in a larger context i think that group is the group that's up for grabs. The political challenge, and we'll get this to the in, in the strange and, and more case, is that you've also got a party that needs to raise money using Donald Trump and that needs to have his voters turn out in the off-year election. And so on the one hand this week, you had Cory Gardner, who's the head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, denouncing the president specifically and by name for not calling out white supremacists. But on the other hand, promoting Luther Strange in Alabama as Donald Trump's candidate. That's that gives you some of the complexity and you see other complexity in Paul Ryan, who made statements about the uh, abhorrent nature of white supremacy, but never mentioned the president's name, providing himself a little wiggle room there uh, or a little distance there from directly confronting the president because of the political cost of that. You know, and the final thing I would say is the trajectory of the Trump presidency has created additionally more difficult challenges for traditional Republicans. Going back to Jeffrey's point, denouncing Nazis 
is is a gimme. Everybody knows Nazis are bad. So if you can't do that, you've really you've really done you've really achieved something. So let's just add to the mix the dissolution of these two CEO councils that Trump had put together with a lot of fanfare. I want to give credit to Ken Frazier, the president of Merck, who was the first person to resign from the manufacturing council in the wake of Trump's remarks. And to me, this seems like an important moment for these CEOs that they aren't just waiting to see. They're actually taking a stance. Jeff, do you feel like they should, and particularly Ken Frazier, should get some credit for moral leadership here? Yeah, Ken Frazier gets some credit for moral leadership. I don't think that we're looking at uh, the next chapter in Profiles of Courage here. Fair enough. But, uh, I mean, you know, these are are rich guys who are under pressure to step down from a, a board run by a president who's alienated the majority of the country is not not Medal of Honor stuff. Well, I mean, what's so interesting, of course, is that we're, we're talking about the CEO president, right? We're talking about the president who is supposed to bring the values of the C-suite, uh, the values and operational skills of the C-suite into the White House. He was going to run America like a business. And we've all covered Barack Obama, and we saw his difficulties uh, in, in, in an occasion dealing with Wall Street, dealing with big business, a chamber of commerce. This is also somewhat surprising, uh, Donald Trump's inability to manage what should be another of his core constituencies, which is to say, rich guys who run companies. I mean, and really, it's 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 interesting, Trump alienating military leadership have come out and denounced racism. You have Trump alienating CEOs, core constituency, all in favor of, going back to this original point, another core constituency. I find that remarkable, actually. One other element of this is, um, well, first of all, by the way, in, in the moves of the CEO and five of the seven members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, we now actually have had a national moment of, of um, re-inking the red line on Nazism and white supremacy, perhaps more than we would have had if if the president's remarks were of the kind we would have expected. Jeff, I wanted to ask you about the Jews in the end. I just want you to stop it. I just want to ask you about the Jews. No, just, no, no, no. Just go on. I from have there? three particular Jews in mind. I mm. guess four, because I should count. You have a you, know, you have a binder well. full of Jews, don't you? <laughs> no, I don't. You I watched. I I am was watching Gary Cohn and Seth Mnookin at this insane press conference, just yeah. with a feeling of real a pit in my stomach. I mean, I I know this is like particularly painful for me because it's my tribe and that's why I feel comfortable calling them out. But like, come on, how can these people be standing by for this? How could they possibly think that what they are doing is worthy enough to stay and stand behind this president? Well, as a general rule, human beings convince, can convince themselves of anything that they need to convince themselves of, right? I mean, it's easy for us to say, Gary Cohen, what the hell are you doing? Uh, but uh there's a, there, you know, I, and, you know, we all know people in this administration. We all know people rationalize their presence, especially at the highest levels, by saying, I, I'm here to safeguard democracy from a person who's not entirely stable. It's not an unreasonable argument, uh, I, I don't think. That said, and, and I don't want to stray too far into my actual feelings because then I, I think I might never shut up and you'll have a very long, uncomfortable podcast. At, at a certain point, I think a person has to be respectful of himself and say that I can't be around the kind of people who see both sides of this quote-unquote alt-right rally in, in Charlottesville. Self-respect demands that a person 
would leave, if history won't inform you, if the, the slippery slope of demagogic behavior won't inform your decision, then simply simply being a kind of, and here I'm probably going to get in trouble, but I'll say it, you know, you, you don't want to risk looking like a court Jew, right? You don't want to yeah. risk like the guy, you don't want to be the guy standing there koshering an unkosher president. And so that that's the thought that I have. Jared Kushner is obviously a slightly more difficult situation because this is his father-in-law. And just because he's your father-in-law doesn't mean you have to work for him. You could honor him as uh-huh. your father-in-law and and have family relations, but you don't actually have to go cover up. And, you know, Jared Kushner is a descendant of Holocaust survivors. And his father-in-law refused to denounce in the way that most Americans would denounce a group of Nazis. Think about how that would play out in your own family. So Trump did, in fact, denounce them. Let me be clear. Yeah, I understand that yeah, technically yeah. speaking, he denounced certain elements of the demonstrator uh, of the demonstration in, in Charlottesville. You know, you don't have to have, let's say, Jewish antenna, you know, or be an African-American to sort of say, wait a second, that guy does not feel his denunciation in a way that makes me uh, happy. Right. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. OK, let's move on to our second. So topic. we're all against Nazism. Just to clear, just to be clear, right? Okay. I'm still thinking. I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm still thinking of the slate pitch about that. No, we <laughs> are all against Nazism. Okay. Before we continue, I just want to take an extra moment to tell you about Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program where fans of Slate and of our podcast help support us. If you like this podcast, if you value it, then joining Slate Plus is a great way to support us, and we would really appreciate it. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing these shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and all the other great Slate shows and a ton of other benefits. So if you'd like to support the Political Gab Fest, please go to Slate.com slash plus. This episode of the Gab Fest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Our second topic, I want to start by talking about these statues of Confederate generals and other figures. Baltimore took theirs down in the middle of the night. Some protesters knocked down a statue without authorization in Durham. There was at least one arrest after that. And we're having a big national conversation, the sort of second or third round, about what we do with our monuments to the Confederacy. So, Jeff, I think that um, 
Trump tweeted a couple minutes ago as we were taping. I guess you should tell us what he said. The three tweets that are relevant. Sad to see the history and culture of our great country being ripped apart with the removal of our beautiful statues and monuments. You can't change history, but you can learn from it. Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, who's next? Washington Jefferson, so foolish, exclamation point. Also, and I think this is the most interesting part because this is Donald Trump, the builder. Uh, Also, the beauty that is being taken out of our cities, towns, and parks will be greatly missed and never able to be comparably replaced. Let's put aside the fact that many, many citizens, I would dare say the majority, and certainly the majority of African-American citizens, are not going to miss the beauty that's being taken out of these parks. I just found that last part intriguing because he's making making a public planning urban space argument for the the keeping of Robert E. Lee statues. I guess there's nothing we could do to replace them and and re-beautify those We have no more statues, obviously. And we can't make new ones. So we're in slippery slope land, right? I mean, there's the question of whether... We should honor Confederate generals like Lee. And then there's a question of, well, if you take one statue down, then the rest of everything comes tumbling down and we erase our own history. I mean, we've talked about these issues on the show before. Uh, Is there something in this particular moment that is more enlightening? What about these cities that are suddenly revisiting their own histories? I mean, I'll say I found the images from Baltimore to be quite moving. I don't see why that city should have, for example, Roger Taney, the Supreme Court Justice who wrote the Dred Scott decision in one of its parks. So to me, a lot of this seems like a pretty easy call. And I also find the slippery slope argument to be completely unmoving because you can make clear distinctions between people between people whose life's work was fighting to defend slavery or fighting to defend the Confederacy versus someone like George Washington, who comes down and means many things to us and did perform an heroic role for the country, even though he was also a slave owner. Jeff, where are you kind of coming down in all of this? Well, I'm against the Confederacy. I just want to stipulate that as well. The one of the I make a small political point. Donald Trump is accelerating the removal of Confederate symbolism across the country. And that might be his lasting political gift to the country. Uh, Mm -hmm. It it is one of the ironies or oddities of the situation. You know, like like anyone, and I'm sure John can speak uh, on this as an historian, anyone who cares about history wants to tread lightly around uh, er, the subject of erasure, right? We all have uh, knowledge of how the Soviet Union, uh, the old Soviet Union would summarily erase things that it didn't like from its from its texts, from its uh, landscape. And I am for whenever one can do this contextualization rather than erasure. I mean, these these statues can can certainly fit well into uh, Confederate cemeteries. I would rather see them contextualized, I think, in, in many cases, which is to say, reframed in the way that they're exhibited um, so that they become educational or refract this to the prism of Germany and its relationship to its to its past. If you compare Berlin to Washington, say, or to Richmond or any city in the South, you see that the Germans are far more advanced in grappling openly with what they did because the Germans uh, understand that they lost and the Germans were made to understand that they were on the side of evil and they grappled with it in a way that we have not grappled as a country with the evil committed in the name of the United States in the name of of whites and so we're at the beginning I like to think of it as a possibly hopeful process where we actually say to ourselves and get other people to to understand this we say to ourselves that we have not yet 
Reconstruction has not yet ended. It was terminated prematurely, and we didn't go through the the full process yet of understanding what happened and why people did what they did and, and grappling with it. That's why Ta-Nehisi Coates in, in my magazine wrote about the HBO show Confederate. He came out against the idea of doing this alternative history of uh, the Confederacy in which the Confederacy won. Part of his argument was it's not over. Like it's not for for African Americans. It's not over yet. We're not in the process that we should be, and this is um this is an uncomfortable and unpleasant way to go about the process. But this is this was going to happen in some way or another eventually. John, do you agree that this feels like a kind of hopeful step that we're taking? Or I mean, this is a complicated issue. I made it sound mm. perhaps easier than it is a few minutes ago. So I generally sign up to Jeffrey's view about contextualization rather than erasure. Can you contextualize a statue that is in a place that seems to celebrate it? And does sometimes contextualization mean physically taking it out of the park and putting it somewhere, you know, putting it in a museum uh, so that the the, because in a park, it suggests sort of celebration and and no, no, no number of alternative signs probably could put it in the in the right kind of context in the very in the current moment we're in. One of the things the president has done. I think, to hurt the cause of those who make the heritage argument, what the president has done is put those people in the camp of the, of the neo-Nazis. I mean, he basically said, you know, there were people in Charlottesville who wanted to um, support the, the monuments. And, you know, it's true that that's in part how the Charlottesville became the center of this moment. But good faith people who want to keep monuments aren't marching with Nazis. Like he, by lumping them all together and by doing it again with these tweets, I'm not, I don't think he's doing great work for the people who care about heritage, not hate. And somebody was making the case that if you really care about heritage, not hate, you would have been protecting the monuments from the Nazis to make a very clear delineation between your views about history and the hate filled views that are, um, that that you should um, immediately be repulsed by because if you understand history, right? If you're never forgetting, you got to never forget about all events. Never forget maybe about, you know, the honor, if you believe that's what there is in the Confederacy, but then you also never forget about the dishonor and vile nature of Nazism. Right. I mean, there's also a tricky conversation about the vile dishonor of the Confederacy. These statues and- are put up to advance white supremacy in a post-Reconstruction Jim Crow era. Right. And that's right. That's, of course, crucial. And we had a debate two weeks ago about whether the words on the Statue of Liberty were detached from its original meaning. So if you want to stay hyper literal about things, statues that were put in parks during the Jim Crow era are really not attached to the Civil War uh, experience. They're there for another reason. Okay, so I want to ask about one more topic, because of course, I have to pull some law into this conversation somehow. So as we know, after the rally in Charlottesville, one person drove his car into a crowd on the street, wounding at least 19 people and killing 32-year-old paralegal Heather Heyer. This was the real tragedy of the event, along with the death of two um, Virginia state troopers who were involved in trying to police what was happening in Charlottesville. So all of this protesting, rallying, and then the kind of ancillary violence stemmed from the decision 
well, stemmed from the rally, but also stemmed from a court battle over whether and where that rally could take place. Charlottesville tried to move it to a park further outside of town. The ACLU defended the marchers. And the federal judge who ruled said that the Charlottesville had to let these marchers in because to keep them out was viewpoint discrimination, which is a violation of the First Amendment. So this seemed like a kind of classic free speech, freedom of assembly battle. And then these folks showed up armed and a real melee broke out. Now, of course, we should say that um, at least... Uh, part of the violence was by people on the left reacting to them. But the armed people, the people with shields, it looks to me from the images and video we have that most of them were the white supremacists, not all. And you, we have, I think, this remarkable dilemma of our First Amendment rights and our Second Amendment rights, where Virginia's law allowing people to openly carry guns becomes a real factor in how you allow people to assemble and raises a question of whether those arms actually are stifling the speech of the counter-protesters by making it impossible for the police to really protect everyone. So I wonder, Jeff, does what do you make of all this? And does it make you think that maybe our ideas about classic freedom to of assembly need to shift a little in this more open carry era? Right. I don't. I think these are actually in conflict. I say this as a pretty much a First Amendment absolutist. Uh, actually, the expression "pretty much an absolutist" doesn't make sense. I'm a First Amendment absolutist. I think I, you got to go for it. If you're yeah, yeah, that was that was equivocation. I, in in theory, support the rights of neo Nazis to march in Skokie, uh, a town that was uh, populated uh, in part by Holocaust survivors. So I obviously would support the right of Nazis to to march in Charlottesville. But the enforcement of these two amendments, the first two amendments, simultaneously, one impacts the other. I mean, you can't talk about a chilling uh, effect on free speech. I don't think you can show up in the town square with weapons and expect everyone to say, oh, he's just exercising his right to free speech. He's using those weapons to intimidate people who also want to utilize their their right to free speech. I, I don't know the answer to this, but I would say that once you introduce open carry into this discussion, I can no longer be an absolutist. Right. Or you have to recognize this kind of counterbalance, right, which is we also have a constitutional rule, an exception to free speech, which is that the state can regulate speech when it presents a true threat. And right. that's a serious but this is the argument that the Second Amendment, uh, Second Amendment absolutists are going to argue that it doesn't represent a threat. It's a constitutional right, and these people aren't going to shoot anybody. They're carrying weapons for self-defense, and you you have to prove otherwise that they're carrying weapons for offensive reasons rather than defensive reasons. I think in order to make and that argument, and they're not crazy to think that they might get a little bit of the business if you look at what's happened at Berkeley and other places where people have come to speak and been either. If there hasn't been violence, there's certainly been the threat of violence. Well, and they have the and they have the Steve Scalise shooting in the back of their mind, obviously, yeah, the attack well, by a, a self-avowed left winger on on Republican congressmen. Uh, sure. So that is so true. Not, yeah. So if you're the federal judge who's wrestling with the next permit application by a group of white supremacists, the ACLU will probably still represent the white supremacists and say that you can't condone or have any viewpoint discrimination. But the city trying to limit or not issue the permit is going to say, look at what happened in Charlottesville. We have evidence now that there really is a true threat here. And yes, some of it comes from the reaction that the ralliers provoke, but it's still a public 
safety concern. Um, I mean, we're in First Amendment land, so the judge is going to be looking at any kind of state regulation through the lens of strict scrutiny. That means like, you know, higher bar. But it does seem to me like it shifts the equation. Well, in this case, too, the problem was that they moved it from the park to the street and the street they were marching down and the area they were in. It feels to me, having gone to school there, almost tailor-made for this kind of problem because it's just the space is quite constrained. Mm -hmm. So you have protesters, you have barriers, you have counter-protesters, you have armed protester protectors, and you have the police in that small a space. When I saw the images of what was laid out there Saturday before the murder um, or the alleged murder, I guess we still have to call it by by the driver, um, so before there had been any significant violence, I thought there, there's going to be gunplay almost seems inevitable. Just from the combustible nature of the close space and the and the emotions and, and significant weapon, weaponry. Obviously, the left was not armed as well as the right, but they were, I mean, there were, in fact, people committing violence on the left. So it could have sparked something very quickly. And then nobody's sitting around, you know, being careful at that point. That, I guess, is another kind of special part of the Charlottesville case. I wonder if the next judge could say you can have your permit, but you can't bring your weapons. I can't decide. Is that, al- think- is that allowed? I don't right, I guess know. the judge it's, can say whatever he wants to say, right? right. And then well, have it, it tested like, later. Yeah, there's this time, place, and manner part of the First Amendment that comes into place. Like, you can rally, but you can't do it at two in the morning in a residential neighborhood and wake everybody up, right? Like, I wonder if there's some way in time, place, and manner land where you could set a condition that people can't come armed. Of course, then the cops would have to enforce that, which would be no fun. You know, the practical answer to to this larger question is that no municipality is going to have fewer than five or 10,000 cops at the next one of these, uh, and they are going to push these two sides as far apart as they can. There's going to be just a a, a thick wall of blue. You'll see a lot more intolerance on the part of the police for anybody stepping out of a free speech zone or or however it's defined by the judge. Yeah. Yeah. Emily, would there be space in the law for a judge to say, uh, you you have your protest here and counter protesters you have your protest over there and we don't need to re- we don't need to recognize a right to do your counter protesting in close proximity that you'd still be able to protect your free speech right i mean i think that you have in some ways diminished free speech rights in that scenario when you start cordoning people off on the other hand as we were talking about, there are a lot of questions that are getting balanced here, and I could imagine judges wanting to err on the side of caution. And I'm certainly I'm sure Jeff is right about the mayors and how they're, the police chiefs are thinking about this. Before we turn to our third topic, if you are looking for more great podcasts to listen to, we super recommend Dear Prudence from Slate. It's hosted by Mallory Ortberg, who is funny and insightful and who does the online advice column with the same name. So every week on the Dear Prudence podcast, Mallory and a guest tackle questions from real people who are seeking help with their crazy problems. Or they're not so crazy problems like ending a toxic friendship or dealing with manipulative in-laws, things that just like come up all the time um, and are tricky. So you should check it out. Dear Prudence with Mallory Ortberg. Um, You can find it on Panoply and on iTunes and all the places where podcasts live. All right, let's move on to our third topic. 
The Alabama Senate race. Okay, Roy Moore, he's gotten, what, booted from the Alabama Supreme Court twice, one from one time for refusing to take down a rather large monument of the Ten Commandments, and the second time for refusing to implement the Supreme Court's order for marriage equality. He entered the race as, I don't know if dark horse is the right word, but he's not the establishment candidate. He's like, he entered the race he literally on a horse. He came in on a horse. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. He's not the dark horse, but he has a horse. Um, so yeah, so he's the troublemaker. The heir to the, this is the Senate seat vacated by Jeff Sessions. The party would like Luther Strange to get this gig. Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump on this, if nothing else, are united right now. These two candidates are going to have a runoff. John, what do we make of all of this? Is this a Trump referendum or is something else going on in Alabama? No, I don't think, well, you know, Roy Moore is a special case. This is a fascinating moment, but I think huge caveats are are involved. I mean, first, so now it's more strange, more strange, more versus strange. Moore has his own constituency there. And so if Moore were to win, I think it would be unfair to call it a rebuke of the president because a lot of the people who support Moore, the evangelicals who support him in particular, uh, have been pretty supportive of President Trump, supportive again this week in the really the lack of speaking out by evangelical leaders about the president's, um, you know, that was one group that did not, unlike the Joint Chiefs, unlike business leaders, unlike Republican leaders, there were not, uh, with a few exceptions, like Ralph Freed, who's been supportive of the president. And Luther Strange, the funny thing about that is that, of course, he's um, considered a bit of an establishment kind of character, the kind that you wouldn't expect the president to be on the side of. And as you pointed out, Emily, there's this common cause between McConnell and Trump, who have both supported Luther Strange, the incumbent placed there by uh, the previous governor, which itself had its own little piece of interesting. Um, it was like a modified Blagojevich, wasn't it? It was a little bit. Right. Of a, it was yeah. a modified Blagojevich, but yeah. there was no tape. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there were tapes of the of the of the mayor, um, but in ben, Robert Bentley. But that was having a sexy talk. Uh, there were no tapes of him saying, I'm going to give this to, to um, Strange in order to get myself off the hook. Um so I think what it will be, though, is an opportunity for, and we already saw it in the pri- in the primary, for people to act really badly and to... Um, oh, awesome. We need more of that. That sounds great. Well, to, to create flashpoint ads, to say things about the president and the party that is harmful, that will cause people to take sides. You know, this is a fight in the in a in a deeply red place, and in a primary, you know, where where the actual positions aren't too terribly different. You end up going to character, and so you have you have those potential issues where it becomes symbolic for a party that's obviously having an issue at the moment over Charlottesville and the president's behavior in general. What is the role for the Democrats in Alabama? Well, I think that is a such a fascinating question. In both Alabama and more broadly in this in this moment we're having right now, the first thing Democrats would do is just stay out of the way and let the president and his party fight themselves and and don't get in there. But there is an opportunity here for Democrats. There are those people who voted for Trump who might who won't, you know, be likely to vote for him again. Do they do it on economic terms? Do they do it on cultural terms? And if they do it on cultural terms, who's the messenger and what exactly is the message? 
Well, I mean, the the message, and this is probably politically untenable, but the message is a combination of anti-abortion politics and Bernie Sanders' economic populism. If you ran someone who is somewhat to very stridently anti-abortion and embraces the Bernie Sanders economic platform in the upper Midwest and the South and certain parts of the West, that Democrat will win. All I'm doing there is giving uh, like a sort of an, a formula. I, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, no, I think take, it's totally take the, worth it. Take the formal also, cultural signifier, right? And, right. Take, and take economic populism, marry those two things, and, uh, or strong Second Amendment. Let's say strong Second Amendment absolutism. Maybe that would uh, create conditions where people would listen to the Democrat in a way that in many places they're just not listening to the Democrat. John, in your Sunday evening Game of Thrones viewing drink, with that drink in hand, either before the show starts or when it's over, what will you be talking about? So what I will be talking about is a great story about uh, in something called Damn Interesting about uh, a mad bomber in the 1950s in New York City. Um, and I don't want to tell you, basically a bomber, in the, an anonymous bomber who placed pipe bombs in New York in the 1950s. It's a wonderfully told story, very well told. I won't give you the ups and downs of it because um, it has a great reveals at the end. It's it's just a great sort of patiently told story of a of a period where you had, for example, the press not publicizing the bomber because they didn't want to create the conditions for him to create more bombs or to create copycats. You had sort of very primitive investigative techniques to des- to figure out how these des- these bombs were designed, uh, which are which are fascinating. And then you had this really interesting other role that the press played in kind of seeking out the bomber, and then of course the figuring out who the bomber was and the particular story of the bomber. Anyway, it's just really well told and. Um, uh, I would I can't tell it or repeat it myself because I don't want to spoil it for those who are interested. But it's in um, damninteresting.com and it's called uh, Ghoulish Acts and Dastardly Deeds. So I have a really self-indulgent chatter this week. I've been thinking a lot about being um, a person descended from immigrants. And my husband in some procrastinating moments this summer started doing like a little bit of poking around um, on various databases. And he found census entries from 1884 for my one of my grandmother's parents and grandparents. So it's this amazingly beautifully handwritten set of census, uh, census entries from Springfield, Illinois, in which um, these these ancestors of ours are listed. So one thing that struck me about this was that they were the only people from Poland. There are many people in Springfield, Illinois, from Ireland, some from Germany and Russia. And then this like knot of seven people from Poland, which just made me wonder how they ended up in Springfield. So my great great grandfather i think his name was moses josephson he's listed as a grocer and the thing that my husband found which i am just keep thinking about is that he tried to get a patent for a vegetable grater and a washing machine and i just really am fascinated by that i mean these people they're they're far enough back in history that i really just feel like i know nothing about them it's hard to feel 
viscerally connected to them. And yet, like, I mean, obviously, I owe them my whole life. And I always just feel like they did this amazing thing by making it over here in steerage and being willing to restart their lives. So I'm now thinking a lot about that vegetable grater. I wonder what it looked like. And I'm, I love I'm surprised the, like, that you haven't used the Josephson vegetable grater. We use that in our house. I don't really know. Yeah, no, I'm no, of course I'm kidding. <laughs> Of course I'm kidding. My son's response to this was like, oh, great, we invented the washing machine. I don't think that's yeah. quite how it worked out. It would have been better if his response had just been, oh, great. Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. But Jeff, tell- you're going to chatter you, about something? Yeah, No, no, but you, you've actually totally I, – I, maybe I'm just uh, – I'm one of those people who orders the food that the person in a restaurant that the person I'm with just ordered. Like I immediately change my mind about whatever it is. I, I don't know what that says about me. Probably nothing good. Um, but I'm thinking about something now because of you uh, that I wasn't thinking about before, which was a, a relative of mine recently discovered the ship manifest for uh, my, my grandfather's immigration to America in 1922, which of course was right before the gates closed and um it set Ooh, me down a path. under the wire in yeah you know right? no 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 but i've been thinking about i, mean, I don't want to nerd out here um but i've been thinking about how lucky we are that we got in under the wire right because we wouldn't exist um, the the rest of the family didn't make it through world war ii a- and i've also been thinking about how to teach patriotism to my kids in challenging times because I feel viscerally, and when you see a uh, reproduction of the ship manifest or uh, a copy of that, and you realize that somebody in America had to make a decision to take in these, you know, bedraggled uh, peasants, because I come from a long line of bedraggled peasants, and you listen to the discourse in this country around immigration, around the presidency, around the fact that so many people are being, so many people feel embarrassed by what's going on right now. I'm searching around pretty assiduously, pretty enthusiastically for ways to explain to my kids why I'm so proud of this country and why I love this country. And finding, you know, having these kind of documents makes it a lot easier. I know this wasn't like a Game of Thrones answer or something like that, but it's, no, it's you, you, you sparked an idea in me. All right. We'll all put up our humble documents of origin. My, my origins are humbler than yours. I bet they're humbler. Well, you guys came 1922. Like, I, I feel like 1884 is kind of the early end of most Jewish immigration, and 1922 is kind of right. the tail end, right? My grandfather so. was so poor, they gave him a banana on the boat, and he ate the peel because he had no idea what to do with a banana, which I think wow. is interesting. That's yeah. amazing, huh? My yeah. grandmother has a story about banana peel too, but I'm going to save it for another time. Another okay. podcast. <laughs> My great grandmother has no stories about banana peels. Some other his, fruit, John. His great grandmother invented the banana peel. People don't know that. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't. I don't know what they were. What fruit they had on the on the ship from uh, from Ireland. Um, they didn't have a lot of fruit. No that was kind fruit. of the point. I know, right? <laughs> I was going to say they were like, probably Can not, we have potatoes. Not, no, certainly no potatoes. Yeah, sh- some dissipated potato, and that was it. <laughs> All right, that's our show for today. The Political Gab Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher for one more week is Kevin Townsend. Next week, we will welcome our new researcher, Izzy Rode. We are very excited to have him. And I also want to give a special thank you to Jason Gambrell and Afim Shapiro, who gave us amazing technical and other assistance this week, and to whom we are grateful. Thanks, guys. Please subscribe to the GabFest in Apple Podcasts and review and rate the show. It really, really helps. We were super appreciative that a whole bunch of you did that a couple of weeks ago. If some more of you want to pile on, that would be really excellent. We would be grateful. 
For Jeff Goldberg and John Dickerson, I'm Emily Bazelon. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk with you next week.